Very good evening, everyone. It's great to be back with you again this week and really looking forward to our conversation tonight. Um, let's just start by turning to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and we ask for your help and your wisdom as we approach what is a really important topic, uh, Lord. We realize that in society there are many people who would seek to undermine your word and malign it, uh, Lord, even ridicule it. But Lord, we're aware this is nothing new. Uh, for centuries, for thousands of years, people have been doing that very same thing. But Lord, we believe it's true. Uh, we have confidence in your word. We believe that it is powerful to change lives and hearts. Uh, Lord, we believe that it contains truth, which enables us to live uh, flourishing, full lives. Uh, and Lord, we long that other people might come to appreciate that for themselves uh, and might come to know you, Father, through your son, the Lord Jesus. So we just ask for your blessing upon our discussion tonight. Bless, bless Jim in particular as he seeks to speak to us on this topic. Uh, we ask, uh, Lord, that you might be with us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. So tonight's topic um, is a really significant one. And the question we're going to be asking is, should the Bible be modernized? And that, even asking that question feels like quite uncomfortable um, because I, for many of us, our natural reaction is obviously not. Um, but it's, it's a crucial topic because it concerns how we approach the Bible. What sort of book is it and how we should actually interpret it? Obviously, we live in the, the 21st century, an era where we have smartphones and Netflix accounts um, and I guess the question might arise in the minds of some of our young people in particular, what relevance does this ancient book actually have to our lives? We seem to have all our kind of needs catered for with technology. And this becomes, I think, a particularly big issue when we consider the moral standards that we find in the Bible. I mean, the moral standards in the Bible are increasingly at odds with what we see in our world. So, for example, all sexual activity outside traditional marriage is forbidden in Scripture. And how does that fit with the view of sexuality we're taught today in school, or even with the current laws of our nation? Simply put, the question is, should we modernize the Bible? Should we update it to fit with the times? Do we seriously have to accept every word as true for now, or, we, or can we be more flexible and creative with it? So Jim and I are going to talk through this, this question for the next 20 minutes or so, and then as just as the same as last week, see why I'm going to head off to a different Zoom call for their own discussion. Um, so Jim, I guess the best way to start um, is to, to actually look at some um, of the, the kind of teachers who are maybe teaching an opposing view to, to the view we would hold to uh, on these topics. Maybe they're, they're criticizing the traditional way of interpreting the Bible uh, and actually give them a fair hearing, see if their ideas carry any weight. Um, and I think there's actually a slide on the screen which maybe gives us um, a few books uh, that, that have been written in recent years by maybe scholars, but also popular thinkers who, who are essentially calling for a new way of interpreting the scriptures. Hopefully you can see that on the screen. You might have heard of some of the names there, um, the likes of Rachel Held Evans, Rob Bell, uh, Dave Tomlinson, uh, and there's others. Uh, and behind these kind of popular level theologians, academics, 
uh, names like Peter Enns and Richard Raw. And Peter Enns is is a particular, uh, particularly pop, uh, particularly important figure in the debate. Um, he's a very kind of well known uh, academic in this field, and he's published two books. One called uh, How the Bible Actually Works, and the other called The Bible Tells Me So. Um, and there's a quote up on the screen there that I just want to read from Richard Raw. Um, and this kind of sums up maybe this new way of interpreting the Bible. Um, and it, he says this, the number of violent, imperialistic, sexist, clannish, patriarchal, homophobic, fully contradictory, and historically entrapped texts in the Bible are just too many to be roundly dismissed. Nowadays, when anyone calls such a Bible inerrant, most modern and postmodern people just discount the honesty or thoughtfulness of the speaker. And that quote maybe kind of encapsulates or, or sums up uh, a lot of what young people today feel about the Bible, maybe a sense of unease that they might be written off as being thoughtless or intolerant because they believe it. So to get our conversation underway, Jim, could you summarize how these particular writers actually suggest we approach the Bible? Sure. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, Ollie, I'm going to put a few of my own slides up, if that's okay, just for a few moments, um, because a diagram uh, might help us uh, see the issues that are at stake. Can you see that? Yeah, that's visible on, that's visible on my screen. I can see that. Okay. Um, so just looking at it there, Jim, we've got a timeline down the left-hand side of the graphic, um, and it starts with creation, and then we've got a number of big moments in the Old Testament. So we have the Exodus, we have uh, this era of the kings, um, we've got uh, the, the, this period with uh, David and Solomon, um, and they're, they're kind of during that period of the kings. Then we have the exile, which, which I'm sure a number of our young people have heard of, um, which is kind of summed up in books like Samuel. The book of, of Samuel and one and two kings, the book of Chronicles. Then we come to a period known as the exile. Um, and that's basically when God's people were taken into uh, the land of Babylon, um, and Jerusalem, their, their capital city, was destroyed. And that kind of, that's kind of uh, talked about in books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Yes. So um, then after that, you get the 400-year uh, period of silence, as it's called. And then we come into the New Testament, where the life of Jesus is described in the four Gospels. And then the theology of Christianity is explained in the other 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, and then, as you say, the final point in the timeline represents where we sit today in 21st century Belfast. Okay. Brilliant. So, so let's start by thinking about kind of these scholars we mentioned at the beginning. Um, what do they want us to think about the Old Testament? Let's think about that first. Right. Well, I want to make a general point to begin with. Um, one of the great assumptions that our culture makes is that everything is getting better. Okay. Now, from a technology perspective, that is true. Uh, the iPhone 12 is better than the iPhone 4. Um, and at a more substantive level, I am very, very grateful that I wasn't born in the 14th century. I was just reading a book about it, and it was brutish and terrible when the Black Death was rife. I mean, I'm very grateful for antibiotics and a toilet that flushes and a warm house, access to plenty of nice food. But at a deeper level, when it comes to human nature, we have to ask if things are, in fact, uh, getting better. 
So in our morning service, uh, Michael McMillan this morning mentioned the wickedness of the Nazis who exterminated over 6 million Jewish people in the gas chambers of Auschwitz and Belsen. Um, but much more recently, less than 30 years ago, over a million people were slaughtered in the genocides of Rwanda. The 20th century was the bloodiest and most ghastly period in all human history. So I don't think it's fair to say that things are getting better. Now, even in our own society, think of the hundreds of millions of unborn children whose lives are terminated, most often in the cause of personal autonomy. Or think of countless millions of children and teenagers whose lives have been ripped apart by so-called no-fault divorce. Human nature never changes. We're capable of great love and creativity, but we're also capable of appalling selfishness and evil. But that brutal reality is ignored by people who who try to who subscribe to the idea that we're much smarter and much better behaved than men like Plato or Aristotle or Moses. I mean, it is such a patronizing and condescending attitude. So it's basically because people think society is constantly getting better that they're actually basically claiming that the people who wrote the Old Testament were quite childish. Is that is that what they're saying? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, so let's take the story recounted in the book of Joshua about the invasion of the land of Canaan by God's people. Um, the academic you mentioned earlier, um, Peter Enns, says that it never happened. Instead, he says, a group of illiterate tribesmen made the story up because in their uncivilized minds, it made God seem powerful and worthy of worship. And he, he tells a story of a time when he himself was a little boy in school, uh, and he told an exaggerated story about his dad to impress his classmates. Now, says Peter Enns, I sincerely wanted to make my dad look good. Uh, but I was so childish that I made up stuff that wouldn't impress any adult. Okay, and and you can see why some people might find that idea or that way of interpreting the Bible attractive. Because, for example, the book of Joshua, um, some people would say it contains genocide, some, some would claim, uh, because there was a lot of killing and bloodshed. Doesn't it make life more difficult then for Christians when we insist that the whole Bible is an accurate record of historical events? Not if you read the text carefully. Um, so let's think about Joshua for a moment. First of all, there was no genocide. The Canaanite people were expelled from their land. Uh, they became refugees. But only a small number of military garrisons were attacked and destroyed by the Israelites. Um, the other battles, Israel was on the defensive. And remember, this, this, this all took place in the late Bronze Age. So there simply wasn't the civil engineering capability to build big, large, fortified towns. Uh, whatever walls there were were just built around the small enclave at the very, at the very center um, when the ruling families and the soldiers were. Um, all the ordinary citizens had fled days beforehand. And the phrases that you find in Deuteronomy about, you know, killing everything that breathed, scholars now say that those were stock military jargon of the day. So it's a bit like... Uh, I remember during the Gulf War, generals uh, in that war talked about bombing Iraq back to the Stone Age. It's typical uh, military jargon, as it were. Brilliant. Yeah, and I think that highlights you know, how, how vital it is that we, we kind of think through the text carefully. I mean, some, some would continue to argue, though, Jim, that even to expel people from the land, you know, maybe destroy their religion and culture, some people would still say, well, that's wrong, regardless of whether it was a genocide or not. Sure. Well, I mean, I'm not denying that there are difficult aspects to God's strategy in human history. And it's a little ins insane for us, Ollie, to try and give an answer to that really complex question in, in just a couple of minutes. 
I mean, there, there are some really deep answers if, if you want to take the time to look. Um, but I'm going to give you just an obvious surface level answer. And so let me revert uh, to this picture. Um, answer me this question, you know, in your minds. Um, do you think God was right to use the British and the Americans to destroy Hitler's armies during the Second World War? Would it not have been more loving to have let the Nazis continue to exterminate every Jew in Europe? Of course not. God is a realist, and sometimes he has to use war to keep a lid on evil while his strategic plan to save the entire world unfolds. I mean, that is the logic which explains the Canaanite invasion. I mean, the quote you can see there, it's so gross I'm not going to read it out, but it's from the Canaanite goddess Anath, who was Baal's consort. Um, you need to understand that God had waited patiently for 400 years for the Canaanites to repent. I mean, their society was unspeakably cruel. It was a cult of death, characterized by child sacrifice and bestiality. So God couldn't allow that evil to spread like a cancer across the world. And so it so happened that on this occasion, he used the Israelites as his instrument of judgment. Now, you have to remember, of course, that God used other nations like the Assyrians to bring judgment on Israel when they became cruel and wicked. So the problems of the book of Joshua actually reduced to the theology of war. War is an inevitability in a fallen world. And if you think that sometimes God's justified in using that reality to stop a particularly evil culture in its tracks, then you can have no objection to the events described in Joshua. Only a bigot would argue um, that Israel was somehow God's special pet. I mean, just look at that photo on the screen and you'll see that lie for what it is. Okay, so how do you, scholars like Peter Enns or Richard Raw actually interpret the Bible? What does it look like in practice? Well, I make two points. First, they see the biblical authors as storytellers, not as historians. And what they say is that these people used the past to make sense of the present. In other words, they wrote creative fiction. They were just making stories to help people understand their present circumstances. So I'm going to quote Peter Enns here. Um, Writing about the past was never simply about understanding the past for its own sake, but about shaping, molding, and creating the past to speak to the present. Okay. And so what was the point then of, of those stories? Like how, how does he claim they actually did help people? Well, he says they were essentially political tracts. Okay. So the old myths of Cain and Abel, he would say, the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, those were written to explain the tensions between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel after the time of Solomon. And then much later on, something like the creation story in Genesis 1 is written to annoy the Babylonians. Um, you see, we're, we're told that the books that we have in our Bibles are really the result of a, how would you put it, a politically motivated scribe who took a big pair of scissors and some Judean tape and lashed up a political tract from some earlier mythologies. And we're going we're gonna to come back to that view in a moment. But the crucial kind of step in their, their argument is when we actually move into the New Testament, isn't it? Yes, this is the critical step. Um, Peter Ann's argument um, is all about claiming that both the Lord Jesus and Paul completely reinterpreted the Old Testament for their own ends. Now, he says, and I hope this doesn't shock people here, but Peter N says that as a professor of biblical studies, he would award the Lord Jesus an F grade for the way he interprets the Old Testament. And he says of the Apostle Paul, Paul adapted and transformed an old tribal story of kings and land into a global story about grace and peace. 
Now, you need to understand the scale of that claim. He's saying that both the Lord Jesus and Paul reimagined, that's his word, reimagined the Old Testament scriptures to make sense of their own lives and their own times. So we're being asked to accept the idea that the Old Testament is nothing more than a collection of old political tracts, fictions that use childish mythologies to help explain the present. And then the Lord Jesus and Paul come along and they take this old tribal story of kings and land and they completely reimagine it in a creative and fresh way that makes sense of the world in which they live. It's as if they mine the old text for some nuggets of wisdom uh, that they then could employ in their own situation. I think, I think that really highlights just kind of the arrogance of, of some of these new ways of interpreting scripture, kind of standing in judgment even on Jesus and, and Paul. It's, it's phenomenal. But we've uncovered something really important here, uh, Jim, because the argument is basically that just as Jesus and Paul reimagined an old text and used it creatively uh, to, to make sense of their own lives, in effect, we should do the same thing. So we should adjust the Bible to fit in with what we think is right. Exactly. This is the crucial step in the argument. So let me quote Peter Renz again. He says, let me set out where I'm going with all this. Reimagining God for once here and now is what Christians and Jews have been doing ever since there have been Christians and Jews. We must obey the call to follow this biblical lead by reimagining God in our time and place. Yeah, I think that's just such a disturbing quote. Um, so it, it's basically as if the Bible should follow us rather than us following the Bible. And it's that reimagining process which then allows you know, people like ENDS to square the Bible with, for example, an LGBT-affirming stance. That's right. I mean, Rachel Held Evans wrote a book called Searching for Sunday. Now, before I read out this quote, let me say I'm not actually concerned with the question of human sexuality at this point at all. Um, and, and nor am I for a moment saying that we shouldn't reach out and love to people in the LGBT community. Of course we should do that, uh, perhaps more than any other group in society. That community needs to hear the message of a loving father in heaven uh, who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Now, we're going to talk about that specific issue in a later uh, discussion, Ollie, I think in a couple of weeks' time. So for tonight, all I want you to note uh, as I read this out, is the flexibility shown toward the Bible's sexual ethic. So at one point in her book, she's talking about a, a gay Christian network she's encountered, and she says, the network offers community and support to gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians, along with their friends, family, and allies. The group is ecumenical, but attracts a lot of evangelicals, many of whom have been marginalized or kicked out of the churches in which they grew up. Some of the more than 700 attendees believed scripture compelled them to commit their lives to celibacy, while others believed scripture granted them freedom to pursue same-sex relationships and marriage. There was room at the table for all. Now, the, the reason I, wrote, uh, I read that quote out is that Evans and others feel free to reimagine God and reimagine the Bible's message for their own cultural circumstances. Okay? They feel free to leave the bits of the Bible they regard as backward or inappropriate to leave them lying like, like bits of rubble from an ancient ruin. But they then take the bits they regard as progressive and enlightened and use them uh, to build their own reimagined form of Christianity up. So essentially they're, they're building Christianity in their own image. That's what it sounds like, Jim. Um, so so we, we've given quite a, a lot of time to understanding this new way of interpreting the Bible. The, the, the next question 
is what is our response? Are there reasons we shouldn't be persuaded by this way of thinking about the Bible? I think so. Um, <laughs> for the sake of time, I'm, I'm just going to suggest three reasons why this uh, postmodern approach to biblical interpretation should be rejected. Uh, and the first is that there's no need for anyone to be alarmed here because the new approach is based on shoddy scholarship. Uh, I mean, I have tried my best to be fair to our opponents tonight, Ollie, uh, by engaging with the most academically rigorous writers in the group. But the truth is that their arguments are built on sand. I mean, let's just reflect on, on the two big ideas they have. First, they claim that the Old Testament is an old tribal myth of kings and land that never rises above the politics of the Axial Age. Well, if you want to engage with a real scholar on the historical accuracy of the Old Testament, then read Kenneth Kitchen's book called The Reliability of the Old Testament. Now, that engages with the best of contemporary archaeology, Near Eastern studies, and it provides an amazing insight into the accuracy of the Old Testament history. But there's an even more obvious response, which anyone on this call can make. It is blindingly obvious that the Old Testament is concerned with the deepest questions that beset the human condition. It's about life's purpose and significance and meaning. It's about hope in the face of death. And it uses compelling narratives to wrestle with the tension between something like justice and love. And it is, from the ground up, a narrative that is global in scope. I mean, think of God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations of the earth. Israel's understanding, self-understanding was always that it had a role globally. Think of Isaiah's vision of a new heaven and a new earth his vision of a time when swords would be beaten into plowshares. So it's simply an insult to the intelligence of the biblical authors to reduce them to incompetent scribes with a political grudge against the Babylonians. Now, their second and their more important point uh, is, or their idea, is that the New Testament is a creative reimagining of God uh, and his plans for humanity. Uh, now, allow me to use a technical term here, Ollie. That claim is balderdash. Perhaps the most stunning aspect of the Lord Jesus' person and work is that it fulfills at the deepest level the promises of the Old Testament. The New Testament fits into the Old Testament like a plug fitting into a socket. And what ends calls a creative reimagining is in fact the unveiling of a deep meaning that was always there. I, I spent nearly two hours or one evening this week talking to a young adult who is suffering from doubt. She doubts the deity of Christ. And it struck me afterwards that if I was ever tempted to doubt that truth, I would read the prophecy of Isaiah. And I would ask myself how the entire gospel at its deepest and most cosmic level is recorded in a text written 800 years before Christ. And that brings me to the point about shoddy scholarship. To prove his point about the New Testament being a creative reimagining of the Old Testament, Enns takes as his prime example the Lord Jesus' use of a story of the burning bush uh, the Lord Jesus is, is making a point in a debate he's having with the Sadducees in Luke chapter 20. Now, this is the bit where he awards the Son of God a grade F for biblical interpretation. Now, here's the thing. If you consulted the top 10 most highly regarded academic commentaries on Luke 20, you'll see that every one of them shows just how insightful and profound and appropriate the Lord Jesus' interpretation of Exodus 3 is. Ends completely misses the Lord's point. It's a schoolboy error driven by prejudice and not by any sense of academic fairness. And that's actually reassuring then, Jim, because based on what you're saying, we shouldn't be scared 
of the views that these kind of people are putting forward. Because when we actually seriously look at the biblical text, um, we see that it answers um, these criticisms. It, it has, you know, it has a really strong response to them and actually shows these criticisms to be baseless. Yes. Now, that was the first point. So to explain the second one, I've put up a very bizarre slide. I hope you can see it. Um, you see, Peter Lenz claims that his approach to interpretation makes the Bible bigger and fresher and not just what he sneeringly calls a rule book for evangelicals. But in fact, his approach is an act of vandalism. So this brings me to my wonderful slide. Imagine one day you approach the Parthenon building in Athens, which is, of course, an architectural masterpiece that has inspired all for millennia. And you knock it down piece by piece. And you then move through the rubble, selecting the bits of stonework that appeal to you. And you then use your selected stones to construct a small, brute ugly bungalow, like the one I'm currently sitting in. And you then invite me to admire your creative reimagining of the Parthenon. It's just so comfy and cozy, you say. I've left lots of space for all my cultural prejudices. It's just right for the modern world. It even has solar panels and a satellite dish. Now, that's what I call creativity. Enns asks us to take the grandest story ever told, a story that stretches from eternity past to eternity future, and boil it down to a collection of old stories that we can use to make sense of our own pathetic little lives. He reduces it to a localized small thing that only inhabits this present cultural moment. Well, if you want that sort of thing, read Aesop's fables. Lots of little moralizing tales on the shelves of bookstores. But your so-called creative and risk-taking approach to scripture is nothing more than an act of vandalism performed by a narcissist who can only view reality through the lens of his own gigantic ego. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, those are strong words, Jim, but I, I agree fully um, because this, this new approach to the Bible is, in effect, a complete rejection of the truth. Um, we're, we believe, we're convinced um, that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it communicates universal truth to everyone from every culture in a way that we can understand. Yet these guys are, in effect, denying that altogether. Isn't that the, the deepest problem with this false approach? It denies the truth. Yeah, you, you've hit the, the very the rock bottom here. Um, at its heart, postmodernism rejects the concept of truth. Uh, all the authors I mentioned at the start spend a lot of time mocking the idea of certainty. Okay? They, they never look for answers. They just enjoy the conversation, asking the questions, exploring the mystery. And they regard anyone who claims to have an actual answer as a naive evangelical who uses the Bible as a rule book. Now, that sort of schoolboy sneer exposes postmodernism's hatred of truth. We don't normally uh, recommend our own stuff, Jim, but in our very first episode of the Equip podcast, we actually touched on, on some of this stuff. And it might be helpful if people have the time to, to look back at the first three episodes we ever recorded, um, because they, in effect, lay out a defense of the Bible as the inspired, inerrant word of God. So if that's something that would interest you, we just encourage you to go and, and have a listen to this for kind of a fuller treatment of these issues. We were obsessed with cake, weren't we, Ollie? <laughs> we talked about cake every episode. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, it is probably important that we just close this, this part of the service with a defense of the Bible. Christianity is truth revealed in history. It's not a philosophy. 
Um, but Christians don't just believe in a God who has acted in history. We say that he has spoken. He has communicated verbally to us. So the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so when Christians say that God speaks, they mean that God has condescended to communicate with us using human languages, just normal cultural artifacts like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, that verse teaches us that the individual words of the Bible are God's words. It's not as if God communicates using principles to us, using flawed human language. Nor can we say that the Bible contains God's words in among lots of ordinary human words, you know, like nuggets of gold in a, in a pile of rock. No. The assertion being made here is that God's communication is verbal. It operates at the level of actual words and sentences. How does that work? Well, let me finish by quoting a second verse from the Bible about itself, this time from Second Peter. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word that is translated there as carried along or borne along, it has the idea of a sailing ship being borne along by the wind. So Peter is saying that just as a, a sailing ship is borne along to its final destination, so the Spirit of God filled the minds and the souls and the hearts of the biblical authors with divine truth, mingling it with the writer's own style, vocabulary, and experience guiding the author to produce the perfect result. So God's Holy Spirit combined natural human processes like creative writing and memory with divine supernatural processes to create the perfect written Word of God. And as a result, we have the inspired Word of God in our hands. It isn't a piece of creative fiction. It isn't a collection of political tracts. And we do not have the right to demolish the Bible and take a few bits of rubble to build a habitation for the soul in this cultural moment. That idea is built on shoddy scholarship. So we shouldn't be afraid of it. And at its heart, it is a rejection of the concept of truth. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jim. That's been really thought-provoking, and we've covered a lot of ground in, in quite a short period of time. In the next few weeks, we're going to continue to think about um, the issue of the authority of Scripture in greater detail. In particular, uh, next week, we're going to think about the way women are treated in society and how, how the Bible uh, links in with that. We're going to think about human sexuality. And then finally, we're going to think about the search for identity. Um, but before CY leave to uh, join their discussion groups, we're going to sing a hymn. Um, this is a, a hymn that uh, God's people have been singing for centuries. It's called Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. And the second line begins with the phrase that really sums up everything we've thought about tonight. It says this, Thy truth unchanged has ever stood. And that's a really good summary, isn't it, of what we hold to at Crescent Church. God's word speaks universal truth into every culture and every period of history.
had a panic attack halfway through that hymn where I thought I may have not been on mute. Um, so in my conversation with Ollie, um, I was defending the idea that the Bible speaks universal truth into every culture. And most of our conversation focused on the Old Testament. And there is no doubt that many people in our society find the Old Testament strange and unexpected. I suppose that reaction is not new. But what is new is the contempt that society now shows for the Old Testament. Um, so just before we, we draw this service to a close, I wanted to make two very quick points about the Old Testament. And the first is that we shouldn't be embarrassed by it. And the second is that we should be grateful for it. I don't know if any of you ever watched that TV series called The West Wing. Um, there's a very famous scene in it when President Bartlett um, destroys an unpleasant evangelical talk show host who had quoted that verse in Leviticus 18, which describes the act of homosexual intercourse as an abomination. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, if I may, he says to her. I'm interested in selling my daughter into slavery. What would a good price be for her? My chief of staff insists on working on the Sabbath. So should he be put to death? Or what about a footballer who touches the skin of a dead pig? Does that make him unclean? No, it's a very well-scripted speech um, delivered brilliantly by Martin Sheen. And it shows just how contemptuous our society has become of the Old Testament. And there's therefore a big risk that we as believers can become embarrassed by it. I know of many Christian students who never go near the Old Testament apart from the occasional psalm or, or that verse in Jeremiah which begins, for I know the plans I have for you. And they usually claim that verse just before an exam. Well, let's deal with President Bartlett's speech first, and, and then we can think um, more positively about the first 39 books of the Bible. For someone who claims to be a theologian, which he does, Bartlett is remarkably ignorant. Um, every first-year undergraduate theology student knows there are three types of law in the Old Testament, moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law. Now, God's moral law never changes. The Lord Jesus says that not one punctuation mark of that law should be removed. But it's Jesus himself who sets aside all the ceremonial food laws in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. And all the civil law obviously only applied in the days when Israel was a theocracy. It's no bearing on life within a pluralistic society like ours. So only the moral law remains in place. That's why we can cheerfully eat prawns while still obeying the Bible's command not to commit adultery. So there's nothing to be embarrassed about here. The cultures that surrounded Israel took things like slavery and harsh punishments for granted. Those injustices were ingrained within every culture of that period. Now, if the story of God's salvation was a fairy story, then I suppose we might read of God waving a magic wand and transporting his people to somewhere over the rainbow where happy little bluebirds fly and troubles melt like lemon drops. But in the real world, God begins a long process. With divine patience, God takes a group of weak, illiterate ex-slaves and transforms them into a well-ordered society. He introduces a proper judicial system with maximum penalties and compensation arrangements. Now, I better explain what I mean by compensation arrangements because it's important. You've probably heard that there are lots of crimes in the Old Testament that attracted the death penalty. And that is true. But in every case, apart from one type of crime, the death penalty could be commuted to a large financial penalty, which was paid off through the servitude system. The only time the death penalty had to be enacted was in the case of premeditated murder. Now, it's one thing to be embarrassed by books like Leviticus, but how might we explain to a non-Christian why we are so grateful for it? And just as we close, I can think of three quick reasons. 
I sometimes give a talk to students that traces the rise of Western civilization back to the prohibition on eating prawns. And I begin by making the point that when reading through the early books of the Old Testament, what you're witnessing is the rise of monotheism. It's an astonishing historical fact that out of that chaotic, degrading fiction of polytheism, there arises this majestic truth out of Hebrew culture that there is one God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is completely other or holy, to use the Bible's vocabulary. Unlike those ghastly fertility gods of the Canaanites or the inventions of Greek mythology, the one true God is not part of the stuff of this universe. He's not another ingredient in the soup. He is the chef. He is the separate, self-existent, almighty one. Now, given what I just said, we might expect books like Leviticus and Exodus to be full of lofty prose that explain um, those abstract ideas. And of course, there are such wonderful passages. But for the most part, these books are full of laws which seem arbitrary and inconsequential to us. Um, Keep my decrees, says Leviticus. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven by two kinds of material. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now, we seem to be very far from the rise of monotheism. But it might be helpful to reflect on, how, on our own experience of learning difficult ideas. And when I was about four or five years old, uh, my primary school teacher, uh, Miss Arbuthnot, I, I loved her deeply, uh, she set about teaching me some basic maths. Now, she didn't start off by explaining Euclid's theorems or uh, numerical bases. Uh, she gave me a set of big yellow building blocks. And I was asked to arrange five of the blocks in a row and then to separate two of them from the rest. And so I learned that five minus two equals three. The building blocks helped me visualize what was going on. They stimulated my imagination. They gave me the thought forms that I still use today. Now, I hardly ever use bright yellow building blocks these days. Their job is done, so I can put them away. How should God go about the business of educating a group of pagans about his character and his way of salvation? Well, someone has helpfully described Leviticus as God's kindergarten. As these ancient people obeyed rules about not mixing up different types of seeds or weaving different materials together, they were actually learning the importance of categorical differences. Categories uh, are at the heart of the Bible's understanding of God and man. So God is not in the same category as humans. And that difference between men and women should not be blurred, for example, uh, is an illustration of that. These profound truths were being built into the fabric of Hebrew culture through their laws. I mean, even my throwaway joke about prawns and shellfish starts to make sense. So it was permissible to eat fish. That was in one category of the sea. It was permissible to eat herbivores in another category called land. But shellfish and amphibious creatures blurred the boundary between land and sea, which were separated into different categories by God during creation. So they couldn't be eaten. That was just a teaching aid, of course. But think what it achieved. Once you start to conceive of God as different from his creation, Then you start to think about nature a bit like a machine that runs according to some intelligently designed principles. Instead of thinking the planets align so that your horoscope comes true, you start thinking about creation the way Kepler and Isaac Newton thought about nature. You start to think about nature as the invention of a rational mind. And that was one of the key elements in the scientific revolution. So those ancient food laws in Leviticus actually made a profound impact on world history. Now, once the lesson had been adequately learned, the building blocks could be put away. And that's what the Lord does in Mark 9. But Mark 7, rather. But, but never forget that 
those strange rules and regulations brought about the rise of monotheism, the truth that changed the world. It rescued human culture and it formed the basis for all science. So that's one big reason, and that's my most long-winded reason, uh, why we can be grateful for the Old Testament. The second is that it provides a basis for all the things we used to hold dear in our society, things like the shared human dignity, the rule of law, the value of the individual. Uh, I'm just going to give you one example of that from the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. Job is speaking and he says, If I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they have a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did he not who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Now, it is astonishing that such an enlightened view of equality could come from such an ancient text. Those are words we might expect Abraham Lincoln to have said. It is a simple fact that the intrinsic value of every human being comes from the Bible. The historian Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, recently published a book called Dominion, and he describes how he suddenly realized that his worldview was not built by Cicero or Juvenal. It was built by the Apostle Paul, he says. In fact, he says, the ancient Greek and Roman cultures were alien to him. All the beliefs that he finds himself at home with are derived from the Bible. It's the scriptures which explain the modern world, human rights, international law, the value of the individual. All these things that we take for granted don't come from the Greeks. They come from the Bible. There's an amazing moment in an interview Holland gives about his book, and he describes Paul as a depth charge that goes off deep within the classical world. And the ripple effects, he says, were felt over a thousand years later. Now, what Holland misses, of course, is that Paul's view of a human being comes from the earliest books of the Old Testament. Anyway, the final reason that we should be grateful for the Old Testament is that it is the road built into history that leads us to Christ. As I said earlier, Christianity is not a philosophy. It is truth revealed in history. And it is the Old Testament which prepares the way for the Messiah. All the conceptual vocabulary that we need to understand who the Lord Jesus is and what he did for us, all of it comes from the Old Testament. If the New Testament is Shakespeare, then in one sense the Old Testament is the Oxford English Dictionary. By that silly illustration, I mean it provides the language, the conceptual vocabulary, which the New Testament uses to explain the gospel to us. So we shouldn't be embarrassed by the Old Testament, and we have three big reasons why we should be grateful for it. It's a major root of the rise of science in Western civilization. It is the single root of all the values that we hold dear in society, like the intrinsic value of a human being. And above all, it is the road built into history that supported the entry of Christ into the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, how it can speak universal truth into people from every culture and language, whether it be tribes, people in Papua New Guinea, or people living in 21st century New York. We thank you that it has been designed brilliantly by God the Holy Spirit to explain your salvation, to explain who the Lord Jesus is, to explain your own character and the way of salvation to people from every age and culture. And we thank you that that will be vindicated one day when we stand around the throne of God, people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue, and say, worthy is the Lamb. And so we pray particularly for two groups of people. We pray for our young people. We pray, Lord, that you would give them a confidence in a world where they can feel shriveled in a climate of contempt. 
And then above all, Lord, we pray for parents. We pray for those on this call who are raising young children in a hostile environment and pray that they will be able to give a reason for the living hope within them to their children and explain why the Bible can be um, something that is worthy of their admiration and respect.